Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute Online. I'm Inumanic, Research Fellow at the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Thank you very much for joining us today across a number of platforms and be sure to send us your questions on our webpage, through Facebook, Twitter or YouTube and use the hashtag CatoTrade. I am thrilled to have Luz Maria de la Mora, Undersecretary of Foreign Trade from the Secretariat of the Economy in Mexico here with us today. We will be discussing the implementation of the new NAFTA, now called the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, TEMEC in Mexico and CUSMA in Canada. It is slated to go into first of July 1st of this year. But before we dig into the details of implementation, I first wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how we got here in the first place. President Trump railed against NAFTA on the campaign trail, calling it the worst deal ever negotiated, and he made a promise to reopen it. But he wasn't the first to criticize NAFTA, though perhaps he was the most colorful in doing so. The rhetoric is not new, and NAFTA has always been, as Bob Pastor once wrote, a pinata for pandering pundits and politicians. The 2016 election was no exception to this. And even though many candidates were aware that NAFTA has been a net positive for all three countries, they still were quite critical of it. The 2016 analysis by the US International Trade Commission found that NAFTA led to a substantial increase in trade volumes for all three countries, a small increase in US welfare, and little to no change in US aggregate employment. And one of the great success stories of our trilateral relationship has been the proliferation of supply chains across the continent. So we don't just make things that we sell to each other, but we actually make things together. U.S. competitiveness is therefore bolstered by imports by both Mexico and Canada. Despite all this, though, the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement began in August 2017. And a little over a year of negotiations, the text was signed by the three leaders on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in November of 2018. But following congressional elections that happened in the exact same year, a change in House leadership led Democrats to push for additional changes, particularly on labor and on enforcement. These changes were included in a protocol of amendment, which was concluded in December of last year. All three countries then had to go about ratifying the New Deal, respectively, and Mexico led the way on this process. Now, if you examine the content of USMCA, it is a bit of a mixed bag. Some positive elements include the fact that tariff liberalization from NAFTA remains the same, and many chapters were just carried over from the original deal. In addition, there was some modernization, for instance, in digital trade and technical barriers, though many of these innovations were borrowed from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other agreements. And also investor state dispute settlement, which has been described by USTR Lighthizer as risk insurance for big business, has been substantially scaled back. The key problem with the New Deal, however, was that the United States was largely focused in negotiations on rebalancing its relationship with Canada and Mexico. And this has led to some protectionist elements within the new NAFTA. This will be most impactful in the more stringent automotive rules of origin, which we will discuss in more depth shortly. Now, compounding all of this has been the strained relationship in the United States uh, that it's been created through with its negotiations in trading partners, uh, aggressive negotiations, but also the threats and imposition of tariffs, such as on steel and aluminum, and a general reticence towards cooperation with its allies. In addition to this, progress on implementation has faced some speed bumps as we have adjusted to a new work from home environment amidst the current pandemic. And there are questions as to whether the USMCA can be implemented successfully this year. Now, to explain all of this and to help us understand what the future of North American trade holds, I am delighted to be joined by Luz Maria de la Mora, who currently serves as Undersecretary for Foreign Trade in Mexico's Secretariat of the Economy. She is the founder of LMM Consulting and the Mexico chapter of Vital Voices Global Partnership, she has served as Undersecretary for Economic Relations and International Cooperation in Mexico Secretariat of Foreign Affairs and as Assistant Undersecretary for International Trade Negotiations in Mexico Secretariat of Economy. She headed Mexico's trade offices in both Brussels and Montevideo, worked in the NAFTA office in Washington, D.C., and is a former Wilson Center Fellow. She also has a truly North American educational background with a BA in International Relations from Colmex, 
an MA in International Political Economy from Carleton University, and a PhD in Political Science from Yale. Undersecretary de la Mora, thank you very much for joining us. I now turn it over to you for some brief remarks. Thank you, Inu. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity of being here. I want to thank you and the Cato Institute for uh, giving us the opportunity, not only myself, but also the Ministry of Economy in Mexico, to share with you our views with respect to the transition from NAFTA to USMCA, which, as you know, we are basically in countdown time. Uh, we are five weeks away from implementation and we're working full steam, even uh, in a shutdown, shutdown environment. So um, thank you, Inu. And let me um, offer some brief remarks. And then after that, we can go to some uh, Q&A, if that's okay with you. I would like to focus my remarks on what you said at the beginning with respect to Mexico and its contribution to the competitiveness of North America. And I completely agree with you. This is not only a trade agreement, it is an economic integration agreement that has allowed uh, Mexico, the US and Canada to create global value chains where we produce together for North America and for the world. And after that, I want to share with you where we are with respect to implementation, the progress that we've been making and also what still needs to be done. So um, just to be brief, um, Mexico is um, yeah, keen on foreign trade because Mexico's economic growth is dependent on uh, its integration to global markets. Um, we know that um, trade, exports uh, and imports are basically um, trade Trade, the trade component is a very important part of our economic growth and economic activity, as you see in this chart, starting uh, 1994, when NAFTA became effective, uh, trade has grown and has grown at the same rate that, uh, or even a higher rate than our own GDP. And today, with uh, data from 2019, we see that trading goods and services accounts for around two thirds of Mexico's trade of Mexico GDP, I'm sorry. Now, um, this um, increase in trade has uh, can be explained because Mexico, as a result of NAFTA, was integrated into the global value chains in the manufacturing sector. So our um, trade activity is driven by global value chains. And in this uh, chart, you see the transformation that the Mexican export sector underwent in the last 30 years, going from a commodity-based export platform and export base to a sophisticated manufacturing export platform for automobiles, for example, is the leading export sector in Mexico. Um, as a result of NAFTA trade with the US and Canada increased by six in the last 26 years, going from 88 billion to more than 600 billion in 2019. And NAFTA has also allowed Mexico to attract more foreign direct investment. Uh, Mexico's network of 13 free trade agreements with 50 countries in the world and its export platform, the, pos the possibility of exporting on a preferential basis from Mexico, has uh, made our country an attractive place for investors with Canadian and U.S. FDI uh, accumulated between 1999 and March of 2020, close to $320 billion, which is a little bit more than 50% of total FDI into Mexico. And as you see in this graph, most of them, uh, FDI that has uh, come into Mexico is in the manufacturing sector, as well as in certain services, financial services, uh, trade, etc. Um, so NAFTA really gave an edge to Mexico to transform itself, to transform its production um, platform. But Mexico has also contributed to the competitiveness of North American industry. And let me just offer a few examples of how Mexico got transformed as a result of NAFTA. Mexico became the sixth largest world producer of vehicles in 2019 and the fourth largest exporter worldwide. We already surpassed South Korea. And we're 
the sixth largest supplier of aircraft parts to the US, the sixth largest exporter of information technology products and services, the seventh uh, exporter in the world when I consider the European Union as one actor. We're the 13th largest recipient of FDI and the second in Latin America, and we're the eighth largest exporter of food products. All of these numbers are uh, the result of the integration that Mexico um, underwent in the last um, 25 years. So, uh, as Ina was mentioning at the beginning, when President Trump <coughs> questioned the, uh, use, the usefulness of NAFTA for the region, um, you can imagine that for Mexico, this was a very challenging proposition. When President Trump mentioned that he wanted to withdraw from NAFTA, uh, we knew that it was, we, we only had one choice, and that was to renegotiate USMCA. The vision that we had as a region in the early 1990s, where we knew that the three of us together would um, create an integrated North America that would become more competitive, was not exactly the same starting point from where we renegotiated uh, NAFTA since the United States, above all, wanted to have an agreement that could show benefits in terms of the reversal of the trade deficit and in terms of bringing back jobs to the United States. However, for Mexico, uh, we knew that it was important to us to keep this integration into the global markets, into the global, to the regional value chain in North America, we wanted to modernize the agreement, of course. We wanted to have a deeper integration. And we also wanted to make sure that we were going to remain part of the North American production. As you see here, uh, and this is these are only a few uh, highlights of the numbers that we can show how NAFTA created a competitive North America, where today uh, North America in terms of trade is the second exporter worldwide. Our exports, uh, our total trade represents 20% of the region's trade. We have a GDP that is represents the second uh, economy worldwide, and we represent 23% of the FDI in the world. Now, the USMCA will become effective within a very adverse economic context due to COVID-19, where we see a, a record drop of GDP due to COVID-19. The forecast for this year is a negative 3%, but may be even lower. And we don't know if the shape of the recovery is going to be a V-shape or a W or a U. It's, it's very uncertain. The uncertainty that the COVID-19 has created has definitely affected FDI, which is expected to drop between 30 and 40%. And uh, the decrease of global trading goods is also dramatic. According to WTO information, the report that was issued around a month ago, it is expected that total global trade will decrease between 13 and 32 percent. And for North America, the forecast is between 17 and 41 percent. And let me tell you that yesterday, Mexico's National Statistic um, Institute released uh, the latest data on trade, and it doesn't look good. Uh, our exports in April declined by 40 percent. Our exports of automobiles declined by 80%, and the production in the auto sector in Mexico declined by 90%. Obviously, this is a result of the supply and demand shock that we have been receiving. But this is also taking place against a complex multilateral trade background where we see that uh, the pandemic arrives at a fragile moment on the global order with uh, important geopolitical tensions between the U the China and the US. Uh, where we have seen a trade war that is not coming to an end, and we find it very difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though there has been negotiations between the two countries. There apparently are leadership redefinitions uh, where the United States is questioning the multilateral trading system value and the rules, the, um, the rule book that we have today. So it's uh, important that we continue to try to reform. We also see uh, protectionist tensions, uh, nationalist tensions, protectionist tensions, as we see uh, with, uh, for example, the Brexit that has also created a lot of tension in one of the most important trading actors in the world. 
And um, what we have done in Mexico, the US and Canada is to try to coordinate actions to face the COVID-19. Um, we have agreed to close the border for non-essential travel, which is the way in which we are coping with this pandemic. We have discussed the criteria, guidelines, protocols, and conditions that must be met to allow the successful transition towards reopening productive activities. And at the same time, we are working on the implementation of USMCA. So let me now uh, continue this conversation with you, uh, explaining a little bit of where we see the challenges in Mexico for USMCA and where are with respect to implementation. Um, USMCA will, will allow us to remain relevant, competitive, and, and open trade regime. As um, Inu was mentioning at the beginning, I cannot agree more with, with her with respect to some of the provisions that we are introducing into the agreement will be testing how much we can remain and how much we can keep North America uh, the most competitive region in the world. Uh, certainly, the new rules of origin for the auto sector and the origin procedures will be a challenge, but will also help to um, shorten the supply uh, chains and procure from the region uh, in larger quantities. We also um, know that the labor um, provisions are completely new, and this is something that we will have to deal in order to ensure that this agreement is seen as a trade integration, economic integration agreement that has a labor component, but this is not a labor agreement. And we understand that we need to make sure that the labor sector is also benefited fully from the implementation of this new, new agreement in Mexico, in the US and in Canada. And we also see a challenge in terms of the implementation of customs and trade facilitation provisions uh, that we know that through information technology and technology will make it easier for producers and exporters to be able to um, comply with the new customs procedures, as well as how we comply with intellectual property. Probably one of the chapters that has most um, impact, that will have most impact in this agreement in North America, has to do with the new regime of intellectual property rights that the agreement um, contains. And we will be able to attract more innovative uh, investment as uh, the agreement is put in place. Some of the, the challenges that we're also seeing in terms of the implementation is that um, there is a tendency, there's a trend to request for more uh, trade remedy law investigations. This is um, a trend that we have seen in the last few years in the US where we see more and more investigations and more and more uh, measures that are imposed to protect domestic um, stakeholders and also avoid falling into the trap that the global um, value chains should be questioned and we should privilege domestic sourcing that we should decouple from global value chains and that we should uh, go local again. I think that those are uh, questions that even though they are in, in the debate right now, we should not lose perspective and we should remind, remind each other that the reason why global value chains exist is because they allow consumers to have access to better products and also they allow competitiveness to take place. With respect to opportunities, where do we see the opportunities? We see opportunities uh, in USMCA as a way to contribute to strengthen the productive integration of North America. Uh, without a question, having this agreement that offers certainty, rules, that offers a long-term perspective will definitely help to increase investment in the region. It will also allow us to incorporate more value added and expand productive development to regions in Mexico that, that have not participated in global value chains, especially in the south part of the country. The, the stricter rules of origin for the auto sector will allow the steel industry, for example, to integrate its production chain and we will promote more uh, regional sourcing. It will help um, the auto sector to bring more investment into the region and to increase um, the original originating share from North America. 
the another opportunity is a more inclusive trade because we have provisions that relate to SMEs, environment, anti-corruption, competitiveness, the digital economy, and e-commerce. And we have mechanisms for compliance that are binding. Dispute settlement mechanisms will be strengthened. And that in itself today is a tremendous value for any investor producer in, in North America, since when it is compared with WTO, for example, we see that WTO is going through a very difficult time with respect to the you know, lack of operation of the appellate body, which has eroded dramatically the uh, WTO dispute settlement mechanism. We expect to um, allow more opportunities in agriculture as the USMCA expands and improves market access of agricultural products and also trade facilitation. The, the provisions that are included in that new chapter will definitely um, should help to reduce the costs associated with trade. E-commerce um, will definitely promote the growth of digital commerce while strengthening the production of consumer data. And today, as we know, uh, in the pandemic that we're living, e-commerce has been a, a boost to the economy, uh, to jobs, and to maintain trade in North America. Intellectual property will help to promote innovation. And for the Mexican government, the USMCA, is important because it also sends an important sign that Mexico is a reliable partner. We respect our international commitments. We favor an open economy and the deepening of productive integration in North America. We are a source of economic growth. We seek to promote greater national and foreign investment and the creation of uh, good jobs. And we favor innovation and competition. And uh, the last part that I want to talk to you about is where we are right now in terms of the final countdown. As you know, uh, the three countries um, exchanged notifications of having concluded our domestic procedures for the agreement in April. So that puts July 1st as the next date. In Mexico, we are uh, still in the process of working with Congress to amend some um, legislation in order to make sure that we are in full compliance with USMCA. These are the infrastructure quality law, industrial property law, the reform to the federal criminal law as it relates to camp courting, the reform to the federal copyright law, the reform to the federal plant variety law, and the general import and export tax law. As you can see, many of these legislations that will need to be um, adjusted have to do with provisions in the intellectual property chapter. So that's why I'm saying that probably that's one of the strongest chapters in the new USMCA. Uh, as a result of the pandemic, Congress had to shut down, but we hope that when it resumes activities, it will be able to take uh, this um, agenda. Um, also, the Mexico-US-Canada Environmental Cooperation Agreement is in the Senate and should be approved by the time the USMCA is implemented, and we are in the process of working on domestic decrees that have to do with the approval decree, the tariff decree, and other administrative instruments that need to be published by July 1st to make the USMCA operational. At the trilateral level, we are working in the definition of uniform regulations for these uh, four chapters. Um, I can tell you that we have made a lot of progress and we hope to be able to have them um, in place by July 1st, as the agreement states. And we are also in the process of defining uh, panelists for uh, chapters 10 and chapter 31, as well as for the rapid response labor mechanism. And we're working to define the rules of procedure for dispute settlement mechanisms. Um, Annex 31A uh, basically um, will be used for uh, times when there are questionings with respect to collective bargaining and freedom of association in a specific plant in the US and in Mexico. So um, this is where we are right now. Uh, we are in the final countdown mode and we are working at full steam, even uh, doing home office, but uh, we are ready to make USMCA the new reality for Mexico in North America. So I will leave my comments here, Inu, and I will be very happy to um, take comments and questions. 
Thank you very much, uh, Undersecretary de la Mora, for that uh, presentation and a lot of information that I think helps us understand a little bit about the implementation process and what we to expect going forward. I just want to have a, a little reminder for those of you watching uh, that you can send us your questions uh, with the hashtag CatoTrade uh, through whichever platform you're using, either on our website, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. So uh, please identify yourself and let us know what your questions are. Uh, it'd be great to take some of those questions uh, from you today. So I'm gonna kick this off with uh, some questions of my own just so we get uh, the ball moving. And it, it, it strikes me uh, the importance of the, the auto sector to, to North American trade. And, and I know uh, Undersecretary De La Mora, you mentioned that uh, in your presentation about how this is one of the uh, big pillars uh, of North American integration, that we do have a very competitive auto sector. And in fact, North America is, is the third largest uh, auto uh, manufacturer in the world. And that's if you count the EU together uh, as one unit. So uh, North America has been very competitive uh, because of the NAFTA. Now, there were some significant changes to what are called the, the rules of origin in auto. They were made uh, significantly more stringent than in the NAFTA, meaning that essentially we need to have more North American inputs instead of foreign inputs uh, in order to qualify for duty-free treatment. Now, part of this uh, implementation requires what are called these uniform regulations. Now, a lot of us hear this, mm -hmm. but a lot of us don't know what they are. So if you could please explain to mm -hmm. us a little bit about what we need to do uh, in order to, to implement these new rules of origin and whether or not we can expect to even be done by July, considering that it is a significant change, or will we have a transitional period mm -hmm. where NAFTA rules will apply in parallel to the USMCA? Sure. Well, th thank you for for this question. You know, I think it's a very um, uh, very important question that many people ask about. Let me first explain what are the uniform regulations. Uniform regulations are um, a set of criteria that allows exporters, producers, um, importers to know very clearly. How is it that they have to comply with the rules of origin that are established in the USMCA? So it is not that we're renegotiating anything new. We're just clarifying. That's what we're doing. We are doing a job that needs to put in paper. What are the formulas, the methodologies, the paperwork that will be used to comply with the rules of origin? In every product in, in the USMCA, but specifically, in the case of the auto sector. Uh, the reason why the auto sector is uh, having so much concerns about this is because the rules of origin of USMCA are very different from what we had in NAFTA. This is a very, very uh, complex set of rules that did not exist. And let me just be very brief and explain to you what are the four main components of this uh, origin regime. The first one has to do with the value content the regional value content goes from 62.5 to 75% in three years. Now we have a labor value content of 40%, which we did not have uh, in North America uh, in NAFTA. And this is the first time that we're saying something like this. We also have um, the 70% um, for uh, rule of origin for steel and aluminum. And we have seven key components. And these key components um, have to also comply with a rule of origin of around 70%. So this, um, this is a new set of rules that a vehicle will have to comply with. And um, what we're seeing here is that when NAFTA entered into force 25 years ago, the uniform regulations were still in process. It was until 20 months later when the uniform regulations were finally set in place. And we're working today with Canada and the US on a trilateral basis to finalize the uniform regulations. It is important to say that there has been great progress on non-auto URs, and they will be ready by July 1st. As for the auto rules of origin, we expect to advance substantially in the coming weeks. Nevertheless, um, 
the auto sector will have certain to continue enjoying non-tariff access as the USMCA enters into force. Companies will have the opportunity to apply for something that is already provided in, in the agreement. Um, and that is that something called the alternative staging regimes. Each of the three governments have published our own alternative staging regimes procedures and auto companies are already uh, presenting their plan. Through this alternative reg staging regime, what we're trying to do is to offer flexibility for companies. Uh, and instead of having to comply with the rule of origin in three years, they can comply in five years if they present plans and they explain how they intend to comply with, uh, with the rules. So um, this will be very important for certain companies that have found it difficult to adjust to the new uh, rules of origin. And in order for these companies to qualify for these alternative staging regimes, companies should try to demonstrate with a detailed credible plan how they intend to comply fully with the, this new USMCA rules of origin. So let me tell you, Inu, that uh, we understand the concerns of the auto sector. We understand that this is something that will transform dramatically the way in which the auto industry in North America has to comply with the new regime. But also let me tell you that we in Mexico have been working very closely with the industry, uh, light vehicles, trucks, auto parts, to make sure that uh, their concerns are heard and also that within the situation of the pandemic, they will not be um, in, a dis in a disadvantage, but that they will be able to fully comply without having to go into very costly administrative procedures. So this is, um, th this is not minor, given, as you said, that the auto sector probably is uh, the leading sector in integration in North America. And we want to make sure that the transition to the new regime in North America is effective, efficient, and does not affect uh, industry, because that could translate also in affecting jobs. Thank you. No, thank you. And uh, it, it is very interesting because I have a question actually from the audience that, that, that's asking about uh, the fact that you know, NAFTA is a trilateral deal, USMCA is a trilateral deal, and, and with these three partners uh, and the interest that, that, that sparked by, by your response in, in autos is Canada and Mexico are, are important trading partners as well, aside from the United States. Uh, and, you know, th there might be possibly uh, obstacles to implementation um, with with regards to Canada and Mexico in particular uh, without the U.S. Now, one way I'm thinking about this perhaps is the TPP. Canada and Mexico are both partners mm -hmm. to the TPP. And we know in, in that agreement, the automotive rules of origin were, were far more relaxed, uh, in fact, opened up to allow uh, more mm -hmm. uh, input from, from Asia, uh, which would have probably bolstered a, a lot more North American competitiveness going forward. Now, the U.S. is no longer part of this. So, so how do you see this shaping up? Will there be challenges in how Canada and Mexico decide to apply rules as between them? And, and how does this affect mm -hmm. uh, implementation generally for USMCA? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, that is a very good point. How do you make um, USMCA rules of origin and other uh, rules of origin from other um, trade agreements, in this case, CPTPP. Um, let me tell you that I think that as long as um, Mexico, US, and Canada production in, in the three countries complies with USMCA, it will be very easy for uh, Mexico and Canada to comply with the rule of origin of CPTPP. It is very costly for companies to have to um, devote a specific line of production for one or another um, uh, trade agreement or market, I should say. So what we're seeing is that compliance with USMCA is the goal of these companies and to the extent that they will have this very high level of integration in North America it will already be helping them to comply with 
the rule of origin, for example, in CPTPP. Thank you. Yes, and uh, one thing uh, also that I, I got a little pinged from the audience as well here, a great question on, on other changes that have happened to the NAFTA, particularly on, on labor and environment. Now, we had two institutions that were created from the side letters of NAFTA, uh, the labor co cooperation uh, agreement, that, that institution, and then for environmental cooperation based in Montreal. Uh, what are the changes that we're going to see from NAFTA to USMCA and how these institutions and, and these chapters operate? Because they were not included within the text of the agreement in NAFTA, mm -hmm. and now they are enforceable. Uh, so, so what do you see as, as the major differences in both environment uh, and labor? Yeah, thank you. Well, there are um, several changes. As you said, um, now the labor environmental provisions in USMCA are included in the USMCA. Chapter 23 is devoted to labor. Chapter 24 is devoted to environment. Uh, to the extent that these chapters uh, are included in the agreement and they are included in such a way that they relate to trade and investment activities in North America, then they are also part of the dispute settlement mechanism of the agreement. Any provision that has to do with labor uh, or environment that um, is applied in an inconsistent way in any country that uh, does not reflect our commitments in USMCA, then it could trigger a dispute settlement mechanism under Chapter 31. Uh, the, in the environment chapter, I want to say that I really think that the side agreement of the environmental side agreement for the NAFTA did create a North American environmental protection regime. The um, Cooperation Commission for the Environment located in Montreal uh, did create uh, a regime that worked very well for different projects for environmental protection in North America. And that will not disappear. It's been taken over with this new agreement, environmental agreement between Mexico, the US and Canada. That in Mexico, for example, is said to be has to be approved by the Senate still. Um, there are several agreements that are included in the in Chapter 24 related, for example, to CITES um, and several international environmental protection agreements that we decided to include in order to protect fisheries, etc to uh, uh, avoid the illegal traffic of species. And I think that we see an evolution with respect to protection of the environment in North America. On one hand, the chapter that's included in, in the USMCA and the fact that provisions are, are binding for Mexico, the US and Canada, and also the creation of a new environmental agreement that will be in charge of the environmental authorities. We hope to be able to um, improve environmental protection in North America. With respect to labor, uh, I think that that's one of the most important changes in the agreement with respect to NAFTA. We see that in Chapter 23, basically what we are talking about is the protection of the uh, protection of labor rights as they're recognized. Uh, internationally in the um, International Labor Organization. Freedom of association, uh, prohibition of slave work, provision of forced work, uh, etc. non-discrimination. So that is the, the general chapter that makes, by, makes it um, make sure that the three countries respect uh, the rights of laborers. Of, of workers. Now, in addition to that, there is an annex in USMCA that is devoted to the implementation of Mexico's labor reform. I want to mention that for Mexico and for the current government, this labor reform is uh, was one of the most important issues on the electoral campaign and is one of the key issues in the government agenda of the current administration. Why? This is a structural reform. It's a 180 degree change with respect to what we had in the past uh, with respect to uh, the labor worker relationship. 
we're interested in um, having better labor conditions for workers. We want to improve the quality of life of workers. We want to improve uh, wages. And what we're seeing here in Annex uh, 23 of USMCA is a very specific set of rules that will make sure that the labor reform is effectively applied in Mexico. This is a labor reform that was passed in May of 2019 after a constitutional reform of 2017. In addition to that, the protocol that was renegotiated um, by the US, uh, Mexico and Canada after the USMCA finished its negotiation um, also contains uh, an annex for dispute settlement mechanisms. And this is Annex 31A and Annex 31B, each one Mex between Mexico and the US and Mexico and Canada. And in this specific case, this labor, uh, rapid labor response mechanism basically target two areas. And on one hand, collective bargaining, and on the other hand, freedom of association. These are um, annexes that intend to make sure that these two rights are fully respected. And when the any of the three countries find out that these provisions are not being uh, respected, that these rights are not being respected, then we can start, uh, as, as the word says, a rapid mechanism that will try to target specifically uh, a plant where these problems arise. This is something completely new. These are provisions that have never been tested. We're innovating in this respect. We know that uh, for labor in North America, this was a very important issue. For Mexico, it is important too because we do not want to um, we, we don't want to to be uh, considered only a country that uh, whose competitiveness relies only on on low labor and low wages. But I also want to underscore the fact that we are very clear about the fact that this is not a labor protection agreement. This is an integration agreement, a trade agreement that has labor provisions, environmental provisions, anti-corruption provisions, and customs procedure provisions, which aim at creating a regime for North America that will provide a competitive business environment and also uh, an environment that is conducive to creating the best conditions for the environment, for labor, and for industry. So, um, in a nutshell, I can tell you that uh, we're still working with the US and with Canada in developing the rules of procedure for this Annex uh, 31A and B. And also we are uh, we're working with the private sector to make sure that they understand very well what this means, what are their obligations. And we know that to the extent that, at least in Mexico, the labor reform is uh, respected and fully implemented, we do not foresee any problem and our measurement of success will be that there are no cases uh, started under the labor um, rapid labor response mechanism because we know that if the rule of law uh, is respected in Mexico, then there should be no cases in this respect. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it is interesting how much has changed uh, in terms of the labor chapter being a chapter itself. Uh, and in, in the United States, uh, this became uh, the the center of a bipartisan support. Uh, both Democrats and, and Republicans uh, touted this as, as a major win for them. And, and you're right to point out that uh, the USMCA is not a, a labor agreement. It's it's a there's a labor chapter attached to it, but by no means is this only about this issue. Now, one thing that I that I think uh, is usually not paid attention to in the United States is the fact that this is a agreement that goes both ways. The labor mechanism applies to all three countries. So we know mm -hmm. that in the U.S., we recently heard that there are cases already being considered uh, by groups in the United States to bring against Mexico when this goes into effect. Uh, we don't know if if that is 
you know, fully developed yet or what these cases might look like or, or what they're focused on. Mm -hmm. But because the mechanism can go both ways, is Mexico mm -hmm. also considering potential cases to bring against the United States, uh, even though that coverage is slightly more limited than for Mexico, uh, is that a possibility? And, and in addition to that, a question from the audience on the uh, remedies that would be applied from the rapid response mechanism. Uh, how would those be implemented in practice? Because there was a little bit of confusion over exactly whether or not uh, imports could be stopped uh, at the border before there is any sort of ruling, so to speak, uh, by the labor panel. If you could talk a little bit about that, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Inu. Well, I, what I can tell you is that Mexico will be very vigilant in terms of this and any other commitment agreed uh, in, in, in USMCA. I think that it is in the interest of the three of us to fully comply with what we have agreed, even if these are new provisions, even if these are new areas, because that's what we agreed. And that's what will give certainty uh, to, to USMCA. And for us, that is key. Um, certainly, Chapter um, 23 of USMCA talks, for example, about migrant workers, talks about non-discrimination, uh, and talks about basic labor rights. So we know, the three of us, that if we want this agreement to work better, and if we want this agreement to deliver to everyone in the region, to everyone that participates in trade, we need to make sure that all of the provisions, including those in Chapter 23, are fully implemented. So um, we are prepared to um, follow up on all, of, on all of these provisions as much as I know that the US and Canada will be. And we want to make sure that uh, we, we learn to live with these new provisions and we learn how to comply with these provisions. The other question that has to do with remedies, um, the language in the protocol is kind of vague. So we are still working with uh, the US and Canada to define the specifics of what do these remedies mean. And we will make this information available to people um, the latest by July 1st. But this is something that we're still defining the specifics of this. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I had another uh, follow-up question from the audience uh, on this issue before we switch topics, uh, that there had been discussion in, in Mexico and the U.S. Uh, of possibility of having these labor attaches uh, visiting uh, factories in Mexico to ensure compliance. Now, this was something that uh, got a lot of news attention uh, during the uh, discussion of the protocol of amendment. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And do you see this as an issue? Is that something that actually can happen? What, what do these labor attaches look like and what is their role in this process? Mm -hmm. Well, um, let me tell you that um, it is a matter of the work that all ministries do to have people helping them develop their monitoring and the follow-up of issues related to the most important trading partners. So, uh, for example, in, in the U.S. Embassy, uh, sorry, in the, the Mexican Embassy in the U.S., we have different sets of attaches who are responsible for trade policy, agricultural policy, labor policy, fiscal policy. So we need to make sure that we understand what are the issues that are going on in our most important trading partners market. So it's uh, regular that you have different types of attaches related to different uh, public policies. Um, and I can tell you that in the US Embassy here in Mexico, Libra attaches have been in place for many years. This is nothing new. We just want to make sure that the work that we all do uh, either labor, trade, agriculture, sanitary and phytosanitary measures at the chest, that we are here to do the follow-up that is required and that we respect each one's um, legal um, frameworks, uh, that we do not interfere on an, in an unnecessary manner, and that whatever follow-up we do is uh, in full compliance with 
the legislation and the, the rules of each one of the countries. But I think that it is um, very normal that we have uh, at the chess in, in different areas to follow up on the policies that each one of us is implementing. I know that this has caused a bit of a <clears throat> of, uh, concern from people, but I can tell you that Mexico will only allow labor at the chess that do the work that they have done in the past, which is follow up on what is uh, going on with respect to labor laws in Mexico. Yeah, thank you. And uh, one other issue that uh, my colleagues and I have also focused on uh, in, in looking at uh, innovations in, in USMCA uh, has been what we call the, the NME clause, uh, the non-market economy clause uh, that appeared mm -hmm. uh, in the new agreement, um, which mm -hmm. basically says that countries uh, within the USMCA have to notify one another if they're going to engage in, in trade talks with a non-market economy. Now, this is certainly aimed at China, uh, is, is how we see it. Um, but how does this impact Mexico's relationship with China? I mean, you, you mentioned in your presentation uh, that Mexico is, is a trading nation. It's highly integrated into many global mm -hmm. supply chains. It's been proactively diversifying its trading relationships across the world. Uh, so would this be an impediment to that in any way? And, and how, do you, how do you see this playing out in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... That's a, that's a very good question, and this is one of the innovations, as you say, in USMCA. And we have to understand that this is a provision that tries to protect the region from whatever third countries or third markets. But also we need to, to understand that uh, North America is a competitive block, is a competitive region, but we're not isolated from the world. We have links, very different links with the world. China is uh, the U.S. third largest trading partner. It's Mexico's second largest trading partner. Um, it is our second source of imports. It is our third export market. And whatever happens uh, in China is important to North America, not only to Mexico. Now, let me tell you that with respect to this provision, uh, the country that we have seen most active with respect to China has been the U.S., the U.S. has already negotiated a couple of agreements, phase one agreement, and uh, it would be very important for us to understand what is the U.S. negotiating with China. So under USMCA, this will allow us to uh, request formally the U.S. to know what is the content of those agreements. And the reason is that whatever the U.S. Negotiates, negotiates with China may have an impact on us with respect to either um, trade diversion or um, any kind of um, taxes that may, tariff duties that may be imposed on, on imports from, from China. And how do we manage a region that has coherence, not only in tariffs, but also with respect to um, the trade flows that we have with a country as important in trade as, as is China. So um, we that is something that uh, we hope to do starting July 1st when the new USMCA is in place. We will definitely request the US to see uh, what has been the, the conversations and what is it that they are negotiating with China because it will be of importance for the three of us to know the details of that of that agreement. No, that's exactly it. And, and you see that uh, if we have a phase two deal, uh, that that would be something that under this clause that the United States would have to tell uh, Mexico and, and Canada about it and, and what exactly it is negotiating. So it would sort of change perhaps a little bit of the negotiating uh, strategy in those uh, in, in negotiations with China in particular, which have been bilateral um, at this point. But uh, mm -hmm. it was very interesting. And I, I have a, another question uh, from the audience that just came in, uh, which touches upon an issue that, that you raised earlier, uh, too, about the challenges of the current pandemic and sort of the, the pushback to mm -hmm. have more domestic production uh, to cut off supply chains. Now, 
For North America, this is uh, incredibly uh, concerning simply because we are incredibly integrated. We have a lot of uh, people and goods and services that move across the border uh, just about every second of the day. And anyone who's lived on a border uh, city could tell you that it happens all the time. So there's a lot of trade happening with us. Now, the U.S. Congress uh, has been discussing, some members have been discussing whether to appropriate funds uh, are there tax credits for reshoring production of essential goods back to the United States? Uh, do you see this as, as a problem going forward? And, and how can USMCA help us address uh, these more uh, domestic reshoring uh, policies that could potentially take effect uh, in the year to come? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, that's a, that is a real challenge today, what we're seeing right now. The pandemic posed a series of questions that we had never even thought about. When we see the USMCA provisions, we see that there are questions related to national security, to safety, health, etc. But we never expected to have a pandemic that needed to be addressed by uh, isolating uh, Sorry, we just have a little bit of technical difficulties here, and I'm sure we'll be online uh, shortly again. Um, just want to restate some of the, the stuff that Undersecretary Delamora said uh, earlier about uh, supply chains. And oh, you're back. Perfect. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, something happened with my internet. I, I apologize. I was saying that. Um, okay, um, this is something that we never. Imagined. So this is not something that we uh, included in any way in USMCA. Second, um, the way in which we have had to address this issue has been by erecting barriers, by isolating ourselves, by delinking de or decoupling each other from one, from one another. Mm. My third point has to do with the fact that this pandemic has affected each one of us in North America, Canada, the US and Mexico, in a different way and at different times. So by the time the pandemic arrived in Mexico and we had to shut down the economy and we shut down production, that was late March. And it was basically a time when the US and Canada were considering reopening. So it was really a real challenge to try to maintain coordination and to try to maintain coherence among the three of us in terms of North American production, while at the same time making sure that reactivating or, or maintaining the global value chains or the real value chains uh, would not become a threat to the lives of people. At the end of the day, uh, this health emergency called for in edit, uh, um, incredible actions none, uh, none seen before and that were targeted to save lives, to save the lives of each one of us. So that, that made it extremely difficult to uh, maintain the supply chains in some non-essential sectors as they were considered in Mexico and some essential sectors that were considered in the US and Canada. However, uh, I think that we have made a lot of progress with respect to this, trying to understand the concerns of the three of us. And I can see that we are in the process of re-engaging um, the um, supply chains in North America full steam. And in addition to all of this, uh, what we have also seen is that this pandemic has put in the center of the debate something that, has already, that had already been in the debate for some time, which is how much of the production that is in China should remain there. And I was participating the other day at a debate at UCSD and Shannon O'Neill was saying that this trend of getting out of China and um, probably um, decoupling some of the value chain from China and integrating it into Southeast Asia, other countries in Latin America, Europe, Africa, 
is a trend that we had already started to see um, way back as a result of the increasing wages in China and other uh, important issues related to protection to investment, intellectual property, and other issues. No? So what USMCA is today is the opportunity for uh, the shortening of value chains in North America, where Mexico could become a very important player. Mexico has al already shown and demonstrated after more than 26 years of NAFTA that its export manufacturing platform is quite competitive. It's um, diverse. Mexico ranges from low um, technology products to very high uh, technology uh, products. So we are basically participating in all the range of manufacturing production. And Mexico could become a very important actor to shorten those value chains, but also to keep North America competitive. And USMCA offers that possibility because we have the rules, we have the specific rules of origin, we have all of the provisions for uh, trade facilitation and for the new issues on the economy. So I think that um, without intending to isolate North America from the rest of the world, Mexico is ideally positioned to attract those uh, segments of the value chain in, in, into Mexico and into the region to help restructure those, um, those productions in such a way that maybe we can um, safeguard a little bit more the region from these kinds of events. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for that comment. And, and you're right to point out that this is an opportunity for North America to be strengthened uh, in its integration rather than to try to find ways to disentangle it, uh, as some have been pushing for. So thank you very much uh, for that uh, response. Now, I think that's all the time we actually have left for today. That hour went by really fast. Uh, we had a lot of great questions that came in, and I really apologize that I couldn't get to all of them, but I got to as many as I could. Uh, the video recording of this event will be available on our website tomorrow. So please uh, go online and check it out if you missed it. Uh, and thank you very much uh, to you, Undersecretary de la Mora, for joining us today. And a big thanks to our audience for watching. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again at Cato Online.